Hello, hello, and welcome to a neuroscience-themed fax machine live show that we have chosen to call This Is Your Brain on Brains. We are coming to you live from a virtual caveat, a venue physically located in New York City, but come what may, forever located in our hearts. At Fax Machine, we wholeheartedly endorse the caveat motto and hope that you will leave our show tonight a little bit smarter and a little bit drunker. My name is Noah Guyberson, and I am a brain scientist. This is very much my moment. But what is a moment like this without friends to share it? As always, I am joined by my co-hosts. Please welcome a breath of fresh air, the wind beneath my lungs, lung scientist M. Costa. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Next, get ready to have an osteoblast because osteoclast is in session, bone scientist Rob Frawley. <laughs> hey, are you an osteocyte for sore eyes? <laughs> <laughs> We are the hosts of Facts Machine, a podcast and occasional live show by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. Scientists by day, pub trivia hosts by night, we leverage our scientific curiosity and delight in obscure minutiae to bring you a show that explores life's silliest, most unexpected, and outright awe-inspiring stories. And also puns. So many puns. But tonight, it's not just us. It is my honor to introduce our special guest for this episode, neuroscientist, educator, storyteller, open water swimmer, and as you saw in the introductory video, actual rock and roll flautist, Paula Croxon. Woo! Hello! Yeah. I, uh, I brought a brain. Oh, nice. Hey! Obviously. By the gloves, is that is that a real brain? <laughs> Yeah, this is a real, a real plastinated human brain that was donated uh, um, by uh, I may I may have liberated it from my workplace. <laughs> liberated <laughs> right before, it right before lockdown. Okay, free your mind. Um, Paula, we are so happy that you could join us. This is a show all about the brain, and as I said at the top of the show, uh, I am a brain scientist. You're like a real brain scientist. You you vastly outrank me. Uh, in the neuroscience hierarchy. So it's it's lucky that you're here uh, so you can help us be confident in our coverage of brain topics. Um, so Polly, you. your CV is like remarkable. <laughs> um, the sheer number of different things that you do is just astounding. Um, and other people would be satisfied with any one of those jobs, like neuroscientist, open water swimmer. I've heard that that also entails jellyfish nemesis. Um, Does now, how, yep. <laughs> how is it that all this came to be? Uh, so firstly, most of them are not jobs. I don't get paid to be attacked by jellyfish, for example. In fact, I think I pay for the privilege of that quite a lot. <laughs> uh, but I do. Uh, yeah, so I, I started as a neuroscientist um, and, uh, and everything else kind of came from there because uh, my boss moved to New York 10 years ago this year. Um, wow, happy anniversary. Thank yeah. you. Um, apparently I'm a real a real New Yorker now because I've lived here 10 years. Um, and my boss, while I was a postdoc, asked everyone in the lab, if, he said, if I move to the States, do you want to come? And we said, it depends where in the States. <laughs> and he chose New York and, and uh, most of us, all but one of us actually came. Um, and I thought I would come for about a year and then I would go back to England and I'm still here. So it worked out pretty well. Um, and uh, during that time that I've lived here, I started open water swimming. I didn't know how to swim beforehand. Um, yeah. I, I started playing 
flute in a rock band instead of playing classical flute. Um, I started storytelling um, through the Story Collider, who uh, one of the founders of Story Collider is also one of the founders of Caveat, Ben Lilly. Um, and yeah, so all of these things happened to me and I felt compelled to keep doing them. And now I have loads of free time. <laughs> well, that's great. You have plenty of time to do all these amazing activities. <laughs> Before we get started, and now I'm talking to, to the audience here. <laughs> I hope that you will all get out your telephonic, you know, phones. I don't need to be worried about that phone device, your phone. Um, and please go to Twitter and follow at Fax Machine Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And please tweet us throughout the show. We want to be heckled by you, not only in the YouTube chat, but please on Twitter so other people know what a great time you're having telling us whatever you want. Facts about the brain, puns you think you missed, just woohoo i love fax machine we always love that so one more time that's at fax machine pod in every episode of fax machine each of us shares one fascinating fact along with the incredible story behind it and finally we wrap things up with a pub style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme which again just in case you hadn't gotten it yet is neuroscience and with that M, take it away so tonight I'd like to tell you guys a story about our brains and memory and how our ability to make memories is itself a memory of our evolutionary past. So as you observed, this is your brain. Of course, you already knew that because at some point in your life, you saw a brain and learned that that's what a brain is. And upon seeing one just now, your brain recalled that and was like, oh, it's me. <laughs> Check it out. Um, and as we're here sharing facts and commenting in the chat and inevitably making too many brain puns, our brains are interpreting incoming sensory information and storing it away so that we can retrieve it later as memories. And memories are made in brain cells called neurons, specifically ones in a region of the brain called the hippocampus. So you can see those guys here from a rat hippocampus um, in red on the left and a bit more clearly in yellow on the right. And I like to zoom in on these neurons for a moment because the way they interact to encode memories is actually really cool. Neurons are oriented in this kind of head-to-toe fashion, one might say, uh, with these little gaps in between them called synapses. And whenever we experience a stimulus from our environment, specific neurons will send information across synapses as an electrical signal or action potential. And the more this signal gets sent between a pair of neurons from one to the next, the stronger their connection becomes, so that the presynaptic neuron gets better at firing um, or sending information, and the postsynaptic neuron gets better at receiving that information and then sending it to the neurons that come afterwards. So over time, this iterative process of firing and refiring creates groups of neurons that fire together really well. And when we reactivate these groups, we can access the information they carry as a long-term memory. So whenever you remember your phone number or your childhood pet or the Alamo, you're reactivating the groups of neurons that encode those memories. So now I'd like to introduce you to the main character of my fact, Mark. Mark <laughs> is a brain protein who enjoys long walks down memory lane and goes all out for pride. That is the cutest <laughs> ribbon structure I've ever seen. <laughs> so first of all, Arc is essential for making long-term memories. And we know this from science, um, including a study where neuroscientists taught mice with Arc and mice without Arc through genetic manipulation how to do a certain task and then tested their memory of that task. So 10 minutes after being taught, both sets of mice, you know, retained their learning. But after 24 hours, the mice with ARC were still catching air, kicking flips, whatever, <laughs> uh, while the mice without were not so gnarly. So would so you describe their trajectory as more flat rather than an arc? <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
I have so many questions about the mouse skate park that I know we don't have time to get into. But like, <laughs> if we don't have time, okay. I'm sorry. If we don't have time to get into a mouse skate park on fax machine, then we don't deserve to have a show. <laughs> if you'll allow me a brief moment. So when I first pulled up these pictures, I thought they were stock photos. They are not stock photos. There's a gentleman in Australia who actually trains mice how to skateboard and surfboard. And in gentleman. an interview with him, mentioned that they loved it. And they're also perfectly built for it because of their low centers of gravity. So there you have it. I feel, <laughs> I feel like I was doing the wrong kind of research this whole time. Like that was an option? <laughs> I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> but anyways, so... Without ARC, you know, the mice couldn't form long-term memories, um, which also makes sense because ARC deficiency has been implicated in a bunch of neurological disorders like Alzheimer's, amnesia, uh, and schizophrenia. Uh, but in our neurons, ARC hangs out near those synapses that I talked about before, particularly when we're encountering or learning something new. And not only that, but ARC mRNA, oop, come on. There they are. Uh, which is... I was going to say, take a minute for the polymerase to like kick in. And uh... <laughs> I know, sorry, I was trying to rush it. You know, these things take their time. <laughs> but this mRNA... is not a talk for the general public. This is... <laughs> we make polymerase jokes. It's too nerdy, even for me. Guys. <laughs> We're trying. We're bridging the gap with our with our arc proteins. Uh, but so ARC mRNA, which are basically instructions that our cells use um, to make certain proteins, uh, also travels across the synapse of a neuron that's firing um, and is then received by the recipient neuron, which then proceeds to make a bunch of ARC. And we don't know exactly what ARC is doing, this recipient neuron, these active uh, sites of neuron firing. Um, we know clearly that ARC is at the scene where and when memories are made and that it definitely needs to be there. So. This brings me to my fact. In 2019, two teams of scientists, one led by Dr. Jason Shepard and the other by Dr. Vivian Budnick, independently figured out how ARC transfers its mRNA from one neuron to the next. And by examining ARC proteins under this very high resolution type of microscope called an electron microscope, they found out that ARC proteins assemble into like a, this hollow sphere with its mRNA kind of packed inside. And this structure is what actually crosses the synapses. And I should note too, that it's actually within a membrane closed kind of pocket that crosses the synapse called the vesicle, which is what Noah studies. I do. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, very yeah. much looks like every summer camp I went to in, as a kid. Like everybody sit, sit in the circle. <laughs> Did anyone else, maybe just in the chat, I don't know about y'all. Did anybody <laughs> play that game where there's the big uh, the parachute and everybody around it, you have to throw it up and then everybody like goes inside and sits on it? That, that was, was the, the best. Shit. That was yes. the best. That's what I'm saying. It was like those colors. Uh, <laughs> so as a sign of times, like my first thought is that like, oh my God, that is so COVID unfriendly. But now... That's like oh, the yeah. first thing that I want to do post COVID. Like, <laughs> yeah. Man, that's, a yeah. reunion underneath one of these tents. Like, just, get, just made COVID sad for a whole different reason. The, that, first like, thing, these days. <laughs> the first thing I want to do is get a bunch of mice, a bunch of tiny skateboards, and just <laughs> yes. go for it. I mean, you could do that from home. You know, <laughs> that could be. I have two cats, so I might, it might be a short lived oh. experiment. So you would need slightly <laughs> larger yeah. skateboards for the cats. <gasps> oh, there we go. <laughs> okay, more on that soon. <laughs> um, so I should note them finding this phenomenon from a protein that we make was just completely unheard of. 
But even weirder uh, was the fact that this shell of arc proteins rendered here in 3D looked eerily familiar. Um, and to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about, here's human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, and here's the now ever familiar SARS-CoV-2. So to reiterate, ARC is a completely human protein. We make it in our bodies from our own DNA, but it looks and behaves like a virus, carrying its own genetic template into our cells and in a way infecting them with memories. <laughs> And it can do this because we got the gene for ARC from a retrovirus that infected one of our ancestors hundreds of millions of years ago. And that sounds crazy, or at least I thought it did. Um, but it's actually yeah. far from the only kind of thing, uh, for the only time that this kind of thing has happened. It turns out that those annoying humans are the virus people on Twitter were oh, no. right. <laughs> yeah. I don't think yeah, we can so. tell them. <laughs> I can't, Hopefully they're not watching. <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell them. I mean, the fact that they don't know, but it's clearly published in papers is pretty good evidence that they're not doing good sourcing. That's fair. <laughs> that well, fair. no, I mean, they've been telling us that we are the virus. Oh, so maybe it's our <laughs> fault. Yeah, it's our but fault. they were only half right. Oh, God. Are, <laughs> we, are we science deniers? <laughs> <laughs> but only half. Oh, yes. Okay. That's fine. All of our views just like dwindle immediately. <laughs> so this figure uh, is like, or this like statistic is basically a combination of like DNA directly from viruses, most often retroviruses um, that's in our genome. And it's actually called endogenous retroviruses. So like retroviruses from inside of us, which is pretty crazy. Um, and also these funky DNA sequences called transposons that we also think are of viral origin. So combined, that's half our DNA and that's insane. Um, and we gained all this viral DNA over various occasions when viruses infected our ancient ancestors' eggs or sperm, inserting their viral DNA into our ancestors' germline DNA, which then after many generations got passed down to us. And freaky as this is, the good news is that these infections happened such a long time ago, like the most recent one that we know about is, was actually 30 million years ago, um, that the viral sequences have acquired a lot of mutations since then that have rendered them like pretty much non-functional. Um, though I will say, uh, on occasion, the sort of locations in our genome that these bits of viral DNA gets inserted um, have actually caused problems, such as hemophilia. Yeah, that was how like the mutation that caused hemophilia came to be. Wow. Uh, mm -hmm. But they also increased our genetic diversity, selected for genes that made us more resilient to them over time, and even enabled some very concrete milestones in our evolution as mammals. So we have placentas, can digest starch, and can form long-term memories, all thanks to viral stowaways in our genome. That used to be just my Tinder profile. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, ladies, I can digest starch, so. <laughs> I have central DNA, whether I use it or not. <laughs> I got lots of viruses. Oh <laughs> Personality is infectious. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I will say, although we're still figuring out exactly what ARC does in our neurons and how prevalent it is across organisms, we do know that fish have ARC sequences in their DNA, but unlike us, they don't make ARC protein. Mm. And this observation, coupled with when ARC appeared in our evolutionary timeline, and the observation that ARC accumulates like crazy in neurons during exploration of new environments, informs this very, very cool hypothesis that when this handsome devil crawled out of the ocean some 400 million <laughs> years ago, Ark bestowed a vital adaptation that allowed him to learn, grow, and survive in his brave new terrestrial world. Namely, 
the ability to form long-term memories. So our memories of the experiences and people and places and emotions that we encounter during our lives, you know, shape who we are as people indelibly and to varying degrees of our own awareness. But our genome, at least I think, is also a kind of memory. Granted, one that spans an utterly unfathomable amount of time and documents uncountable chance events, but it's also a testament to the challenges and changes that our ancestors weathered and that have made us who we are today. And that's something I just like thinking about, especially now, but it's also just cool. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> I love that. That's incredible. Next up, we have Rob. Rob, what do you have for us? Yeah, I have a very exciting themed PowerPoint for you guys. So um, just to get started, because I think um, I think it's important. This, this is a test. Tell me if you recognize this. I will be the very best. Oh. No one ever was. Okay. Hopefully half the chat just got really hyped and the other half has Paula's reaction. Um, <laughs> because we have on our hands a natural experiment. Do you, do you care about Pokemon? Yes or no? Um, so today I am telling you about, or basically this week I learned something that I've known for years that there is a region of my brain that is just full of Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> and, but now, now when I say that, I can actually prove it with certainty. Uh, yeah, or at least I can, I can, I can point to very strong evidence that uh, supports my case. <laughs> Sorry, I got, the theme song really got oh, me. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just so exciting. <laughs> it was big. It's it the vapors. <laughs> so, um, and also every slide is going to have this Game Boy <laughs> 256-bit grass and tree background um, just for your enjoyment. Um, so there is a Pokemon region of the brain. Um, it is, it is a, a region associated with recognition, which is a perhaps type of memory. Um, Emily, could it be this part of your brain? <laughs> uh, yeah. So on this the right, might help yeah. you later on. Yeah. On the right is a hippocampus. Ooh. On the left is uh, anyone? A hippocampus. <laughs> if, you're, if you're Greek. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Literally. You know, this is like one of the few I don't Oh, this remember. is a Pokemon hippocampus. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. There you go. So this. No, they look like that. They That's what they look like in nature. <laughs> this out of the Hudson River this morning. Do you see the red eyes that are just furious? <laughs> so this Pokemon is actually cleverly called Horsey. Yeah. Inverse of seahorse. Campus uh, hippo. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it is, it is in fact, not this uh, part of the brain that I want to talk about or this Pokemon either. Um, so what we're going to do is take a little uh, deep dive into a scientific research paper that came out in no journal other than nature, human behavior. <gasps> Extensive childhood experience with Pokemon suggests eccentricity drives organization of the visual cortex. Frankly, you could have stopped it right at eccentricity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that's, that's like an Easter egg in all of this is that um, it's not that kind of eccentricity, but it also is. <laughs> um, so what this paper is actually talking about is the way that we see things and the way that we recognize the outside world with our brain. Um, and before I dive into the science, I actually do want to give a quick Pokemon pop quiz. So this is for 
uh, M, Noah, and Paula, but also for the audience to play along on a slight delay. So this is going to help us kind of set a baseline. Okay. Um, so I'm going to show you some things, and you just tell me what you think they would be called. If you're walking down the street and you saw this, what would you call it? Flaming dragon thing. <laughs> that a Charizard? That is. Like, like some version? Yes. yes, that is Whoa. The most evolved form of a Charmander. Yeah. Okay. And according to the stats on the on the Pokemon cards, it's only six feet tall. So like not a very intimidating dragon. Um, but yeah, so that's Charizard. Uh, here's here's another one. So this is, I think, in kind of increasing difficulty. Turnip. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's more of a blueberry. <laughs> no, no, do you do you have a guess? For I this sure one? do. That's Oddish, right? Well, I mean, it's not normal, but uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't get me like that with those prepared jokes. <laughs> yes, that is the Pokemon called Oddish. Perfect. And then here's here's a third one. Any ideas? I wish my niece and nephew were here right now to help me with this. I I don't totally remember the name. Um, Come on, chat, help us. It's yeah. something like Scyther. Okay. Um, and I heard a quote on Twitter that was the closest thing you'll ever feel to being a ghost is knowing the answer in a trivia show, yelling it, but they can't hear you. So, <laughs> so really thrilled that the chat was able to commune with us and get that. <laughs> Thank you, everyone in the chat. You know, I'm really upset because we, bef I mean, you know, it was it was amazing doing like live shows in person at Caveat, but yeah. we did a show called A Science Seance. <laughs> And, and we didn't have the opportunity for people to feel like ghosts. It's true. <laughs> trying to communicate through the Ouija board of YouTube chat. <laughs> if only we'd done. <laughs> uh, okay. But so let, let's take a second to just dive into the science of what's going on in this paper. Um, when you recognize things, uh, a certain part of your brain is activated. It's actually kind of present and, and pumping in recognition. Uh, and so there's a lot of debate around like the exact kind of geography of where in your brain is that happening. Um, and so, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later. There's a part of the brain that's been associated with recognizing faces. Um, and so that's in a place called the fusiform gyrus, and it's even been called the facial fusiform area. Um, and then there's another part of the brain that's really good at kind of recognizing areas, landscapes. Um, and so there's been this debate about, okay, is it because when you use faces, you use the center part of your vision, but when you look at landscapes and uh, rooms, you're using peripheral and different parts of your visual cortex, or is it because faces have a lot of curvature and nuance and because man-made forms like landscapes have a lot of linearity, they're flat lines, like broad, bold, flat lines. So is it curvature versus linearity? Or is it kind of focus versus periphery? And this this had been kind of an open question. Um, and so this this graduate student, or sorry, this postdoctoral researcher at Stanford realized if he could train children at a young age to recognize uh, a set of somewhat linear images that were focal, like kind of right in front of them, then he could compare, okay, is it linear but focal and it's in one part of the brain or is it is it like in another part of the brain so he could do this comparison and what what he realized being a millennial i guess was that <laughs> that at some point nintendo in 1996 created this natural experiment where they made 256 bit animated characters that were roughly linear compared to like the continuous curves of a face or other natural objects and that they were focal held at like arm's length in front of the face in black and white and they're always the same 
So I just want to I just want to say continuous curves also in the bio of my Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> Please go on. Learning a lot about you tonight, Noah. <laughs> um, but but so this this experiment this is a natural experiment we would say like something that happened in society that we can now go back and test um, because as we saw some of us really know our Pokemon and played these games. And several of us have no idea what's going on. Uh, and so will not have any kind of recognition for these Pokemon figures. Uh, and so he pitched this to his PI um, and uh, got the green light. And the question was basically like, okay, like low bit image of a Pokemon, but right in the middle. And we'll see if it, if it skews towards landscape or if it skews towards face. That was basically the premise of the experiment. And to do that, to kind of see where it was happening, um, they use this technology. Oh, sorry. So these are the images that they actually would show people. So really quickly, um, can you tell you again, the audience and, and uh, M, Noah, and Paula, Pokemon or not Pokemon? That's a horse. <laughs> that, yeah, that seems like not Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, it could, be a, it could be a distinguished Ponyta. <laughs> so this one's not a Pokemon. You would have scored well here. Um, here's another image. Pokemon or not Pokemon? Pokemon. Oh, yeah, it's got to be. Wait, okay. was this the test? Was the test whether it was one or not? No. So the, well, you're, the, oh, problem okay. here, the problem here is that you're showing obviously animated characters and then also horses. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm cherry picking from the I don't want to be critical of the research here. But... <laughs> I feel like the better control, even though they're technically still Pokemon, are the Pokemon that came out after the 150 original Pokemon. Oh, I have no time for more than 151 Pokemon. But, but they're animated in a similar way. You know what it's I mean? True. Yeah, that would be a good... That That's a fair point. Um, Reviewer number two. Um, <laughs> uh, but so this is a, a Clefairy, which by the way, for being linear, is probably the roundest Pokemon, like besides Jigglypuff. Am I right? Um, okay, but here, here's a third one Pokemon or not Pokemon? Uh, no, because it's got those curvatures that go in the Tinder profile. <laughs> yeah. That's from Mario, maybe? Yeah, so so this it looks like a mixture of a Ghastly and a Gengar, if you want to get really old school okay. Pokemon. Yeah, but nope. this, <laughs> this is from uh, Super Mario 3 and beyond. Uh, this is the character, it's a boo. But so participants were shown images like this while in an fMRI. So it wasn't so much the conscious act of deciding yes or no, or, or even like being able to say the name, but it was more like, what does your brain do when it sees that? Um, and, and a really interesting kind of set of results came out. So they had two groups, two cohorts, one that identified as like Pokemon positive. I played Pokemon as a kid a lot. And the other one was Pokemon agnostic. And they ran them through an fMRI scanner and they would look for active regions of the brain. And the, the one that we're going to look at more closely is an image that's aligned kind of like this. I'm just going to check with the neuroscientists in the room. Did I, did I orient this the right way? Oh yeah. Very good. No one actually knows. Uh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but you can you can kind of see eyes coming up on the top here. So this is the rear brain. And you can see we're kind of going through slices in and out of the screen. Uh, and so this lower uh, this lower portion here, um, which if you imagine like the head kind of body going into your screen would be on the right side. This is where they were looking in the, the right side of this uh, fusiform gyrus. And what they did was they put them through a series of experiments where, oh, let's see, did you play Pokemon or not? Here's a hallway. And in the hallway, we can see, oh, there's the kind of either peripheral or rectilinear kind of space. If you didn't play Pokemon, no difference. The same region activated. Uh, and then show them a face. Here's a nice face. 
look in a different area of the brain, it's active. Uh, if you didn't play Pokemon, guess what? You can still recognize faces pretty well um, because it's essential. Uh, it might even be more important because if you weren't playing Pokemon, you might've been having social interactions with other humans. <laughs> so this is kind of our, if it's gonna be rectal, if it's, if it's periphery, then it'll be on one side. If it's fo focal, it's on the other. Like, so this is gonna give us our answers. Right. So thing one, looking at a Pokemon, it shows up over here, which is a little bit over from where the facial fusiform gyrus is. It's a slightly different region. It's in the occipitotemporal sulcus. Actually. Yes, thank you, because I didn't know what those letters stood for. So that's... Uh... <laughs> which literally means it's a crease that goes from the back to the temple. What was cool, but maybe unexpected here, was this This was geographically more more towards the face side, but but unique. Like this is a new, like a, it's doing something that they maybe didn't expect to see so much activity right there. But then for the people who didn't play Pokemon, um, and this is like, I mean, this is not a burn, but like, Emily, Paula, this might have been your brain a few seconds ago because you're like, what? Oh, inactive. <laughs> Shut down. <laughs> and so like really kind of clear, like <laughs> on off response. I'm actually a little surprised by that because the fusiform face gyrus, as I understand it, act is activated not only when you see real human faces, but also when you see cartoon faces. When you see like basically the, the sort of stripped down orientation of like eye, eye, like mouth. Is sort of like what I mean. That's maybe I didn't study hard enough. Well, and, and also things that you're expert in, right? Mm. So um, people who are experts in recognizing uh, cars or birders um, also get activation in their fusiform face area when they see the things that they're expert in. Um, mm. But it depends what the comparison was here, right? So actually, it's never true that your brain is inactive like that. It's not. True that when I look at Pokemon, there's nothing happening in my brain, even though it may look like that from my face. Right. So it depends what they were comparing. So if they were comparing uh, something else with it that, that might have led to that result, I don't know. Yeah, right. These, these, are, these are changes above like baseline. Yes, exactly. So this is yeah. not overall like activity. You're, if, if it was just like, yeah. is your brain active? Your whole brain would be like, <laughs> like this is this is like we 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 take a picture basically of like the signal that's coming from your brain in an fMRI machine when you're just chilling or and then in like some control condition and then that unbelievable level of activity then we take the little bit extra that we get on top of whatever task you're presented with yeah and if if I understand correctly it was kind of they they had removed the like the non Pokemon so like something along the lines of having seen Boo from Mario and a horse and then getting like their rough activity and then just kind of removing all that signal. And then for Pokemon person on the top, there is still, oh, like, oh, that's a Pokemon. It's cool. My brain is like doing more versus on the bottom. Like it's, you know, it's as exciting as a black and white horse. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. Which is among the most exciting horses. Yeah, which is still, like, still saying quite a lot. Let me tell you. <laughs> But so, so this is a really cool study, not least of which, like for reasons that include like, you know, understanding regions of the brain and how they work and how we recognize things. But because in the journal Nature, uh, the word Pokemon appeared 288 times, which I just think is what a, what a great, what a great <laughs> for Nintendo. <laughs> um, and I, I kind of wanted to just to, to wrap up by thinking about, okay, so it has a name. Um, Paula told us what sulcus it was. Um, but if you, if you had to name that dear, dear listeners, what would you call a region of the brain that was specific to a particular Pokemon? 
Because <laughs> like you could have a part of the brain that recognizes caterpies and call it the caterpia mater for, oh. for your neuroscience Pokemon fans. Or a or a cella a cerebell sprout. Yeah. I'm going for a really small overlap of two Venn diagram circles here. I, I have not had enough time for to prepare with my Pokemon names, but I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with, <laughs> go with Squirtelencephalon. Oh, I had Car Charmeleoncephalon. Oh. Oh, all kinds I of words. Have one, although it's oh. cell. Perkin Jigglypuff. Oh. 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 And champion, and then, champion. If you, if you listen closely. <laughs> You can hear all the non-neuroscientists closing their YouTube windows now. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs>
turns out that's because the two sides of our body and the two sides of our experience are quite separate and we need the corpus callosum to bring them together. So here's a sketch of a brain um, with the eyes nicely there and a couple of hands that I had to really think about whether I placed in the right orientation <laughs> or not. And, uh, and so it turns out that if you're viewing something um, like this lovely logo here um, on the left side of space, uh, it ends up on the right side of your brain. Um, and so your left side of your brain needs to get that information somehow from the right side of the brain. And if you can't do that, then it's kind of sequestered. And likewise, um, if you're really enjoying this show and we were all together um, and you wanted to buy us a very topical beer, um, <laughs> With your left hand, you would need the right side of your brain to relay that information, that motor information. So it turns out there's massive amounts of segregation of information in the brain, and we really need our corpus callosum to bring them together. Um, and so um, what this team of people did, um, uh, so uh, the lead investigator on this was Mike Gazaniga, um, and the person I learned this from is Brenda Milner, who's also a memory researcher. Um, and um, they basically brought people in, and they gave them this kind of a setup. So um, they put them in front of a screen um, and they had them stare straight ahead at that tiny dot. And so everything that they presented to the left side of the screen would end up only being presented to the right side of their brain and potentially not making its way across and vice versa. Um, so I'm gonna depict whenever something's shown to a side of the brain, I'm gonna light it up bright yellow because that's how your brain looks when it receives information. Um, so in this case, they started by showing people words. So here they are showing the word ring to the left hemisphere by placing on the right side of the screen. And they asked the person what they saw on the screen and the person could tell them that they saw the word ring. Um, and then they flipped it around. So then they showed them a, a word on the left-hand side of the screen um, and that reached their right hemisphere. And when they asked the person what they saw, they didn't say key. Um, but they did say some things. Uh, they usually came up with some kind of answer and it was wrong. And when they were asked why they came up with that kind of answer, um, they made something up. Um, and that's because the left side of the brain is where language uh, is produced and processed um, in the vast majority of people. Um, and uh, it turns out the left side of the brain is really chatty. Uh, so it really <laughs> likes to talk. Um, and so yeah, so the left side of the brain would wade in, but they weren't actually able to reproduce that. However, if you gave them some, if they gave them some items to feel with their left hand, which is controlled by the right side of their brain, they were able to correctly pick out that item, even though the left side of the brain would then totally confabulate and make up some reasons for why uh, that, that had been picked. Like, oh, well, I'm going home in a bit, so I'm obviously going to need a key right. to get in, something like that. Um, and uh, so... So they, they would they would feel it and then know it was right and then kind of figure out what it was. Oh wow! They would. They would. That's exactly right. I'm just going to leave this image here while we discuss that. <laughs> so they also during the the, uh, the time of their testing, they also flashed up uh, images of oh, naked people. They did flash them. They did flash them. Uh, I had a lot of fun searching for this image as uh, an example, uh, and. Uh, when they showed it to the right hemisphere of the brain, the person uh, did not say what it was, but instead they did exactly what uh, the host's <laughs> fax machine did, uh, which was nervous laughter. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> and that's that's super interesting because it turns out that laughter is not localized to, to one hemisphere of the brain like language is, and that's partly mm. because it seems to not be learned. So it's an in, in, innate. Um, babies learn to laugh um, really, really quickly with, without all the years that they need to learn language. The last slide was was a was a was a sobering slide, relatively speaking, of, of the brain of somebody who suffered damage to the left side of their brain in an area called Broca's area. Um, which is where the chatty, which is the chatty area of the brain. This is yeah. Paul. This is Paul Broca's uh, famous patient who was known as Tam because that was the only word he could produce, and he was the opposite of chatty for that reason. Um, and so, um, and so, yeah, coming back full circle to the brain myth of the left logical brain, it's not actually logical. It's just extremely chatty and intent on explaining away all kinds of things, just like the left side of my brain is intent on explaining away some of these jokes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, it, yeah, the, those studies are the, are the reason why that exists. But I think they're actually a lot cooler than the brain myth. They are. They're very, very For cool. Sure. So we have reached the quiz portion of the evening, uh, and that is a pub style trivia quiz inspired by neuroscience. So, and I should say loosely inspired by neuroscience. Um, <laughs> as it like happens, my whole career. <laughs> yeah, I, as, as it happens, these are all directly inspired by neuroscience, but in the past, we have gotten very loose with that concept. Question one, if y'all are ready. So ready. Yeah, let's do it. Humans like to think that we, or even primates in general, are unique in the animal kingdom when it comes to cognitive faculties. But what animal that emerged roughly 300 million years before we did has been observed to exhibit complex problem solving and flexibility in the use of tools? Oh, oh, oh. Octopuses? Yeah. Oh. It was octopuses. Okay, good. The answer is octopuses. Um, nice. Octopuses have been... Right. I'm just going to keep saying octopuses until it sounds like I should be saying that instead of octopi. We, we, we oh, have. I, I read once that it was opto octopode. In in the chat, we do have we oh. have some cephalopod specialists who are, I'm sure are going to yes. sound off shortly. Oh, um, yes. oh yes. Um, thanks. Oh wait, no, I'm wrong. It's not octopuses. <laughs> so the, the words of Skype science. I think this is Sarah coming in. It is octopuses, but octopodes is okay. But the reason I asked this question is that it's it's octop octopuses um, have a number of really, really interesting tool-related behaviors. Cephalopods in general have a lot of really, really cool cognitive faculties that uh, have resulted in them being protected among other invertebrates for the fact that basically we're like, oh, they probably feel pain and like know how to solve puzzles and shit. So I just want to give you some examples. They have been observed to retrieve discarded coconut shells manipulate them, transport them, and then reassemble them for use as shelter. And it's also thought that before humans made discarded coconut shells common on the seafloor, they would rip apart like various bivalves and use their shells as like a little shield. Um, and they can do a lot of other things. For example, one octopus in the lab was, giving was actually given Lego bricks in its tank mm -hmm. and used them to barricade the entrance to its lair. <laughs> and it's described as lair in the paper. In <laughs> <laughs> well, they have a lot more, a lot more, uh, I guess, appendages to step on those like little bricks as well. <laughs> oh, yes. My favorite though is that some octopuses tear off, tear off the tentacles of Portuguese man of war <laughs> and wield them for defense and for capturing prey. Whoa. Oh, yes. <laughs> and 
this is basically a study um, from Tremoctopus violaceus. Basically, what it did was in its suckers, which you see so beautifully arranged here, had sort of aligned like Portuguese man o' stings. Oh, wow. So that if it like grabbed you, what hit you was the Portuguese man o' war sting. Oh, wow. Which is fucking That's cool. Wild. Which makes um, him smarter than me because when I was attacked by that jellyfish in, a, <laughs> in my open water swim, I didn't pick it up and use it as a weapon against others. You really <laughs> missed just, out on a I great opportunity. You might, you might have won that race if you had picked up that jellyfish and just slapped another racer with it. <laughs> just stung everybody <laughs> around me. If you rip the arm... <laughs> If you rip the arm off another species to use it as a weapon, is that literally an evolutionary arms race? Question two. <laughs> Since we have a neuroscientist slash flautist here, it is time for a brain slash woodwind instrument question. Of course it is. <laughs> what protein that is important for the organization of synapses shares its name with a woodwind instrument that means small in Italian, although it is called Ottavino in Italy? I, I used to play a woodwind instrument that means small, um, but, this... I, but I don't know the protein answer, which is a bit embarrassing. Well, let um, me tell you, it's yeah. the same. <laughs> but, but I used to play an instrument called the piccolo. The piccolo yeah. is the answer. Okay. I hated so. playing the piccolo, by the way. I felt marginalized, yeah, because I didn't have that much. Uh, I didn't have that much to play because it's quite high pitched. Yes. And then, and so here's, let me ask you, let me say this, because this is part of, part of the explanation of this question. So Ottavino means little octave, a reference, mm -hmm. and it's supposedly mm -hmm. referencing the fact that the piccolo is always played one octave higher than it is written in the sheet music. Is that right? Yes. Okay. That's right. And that's, <laughs> that's, just, that's because sheet music only has, well, sheet music only has those like few lines on it. Right. And then yeah. the flute even has like several, like you have to put like extra lines so for the piccolo, you'd have to put so many extra lines that it would just right. be impossible to read. So, so the pi piccolo is also the name of a protein at the presynapse. Let me see what we have next here. Yes, it's a piccolo. <laughs> this is a guy who's just feeling the piccolo. Oh, my God. Um, oh this I, think, is a... I think we have a piccolo player in in the chat, by the way. Very cool. Meryl Very says cool. you have choices to make as a musician playing the piccolo or playing a tune. This is true. <laughs> Question three. Is this question three? Yes, yeah. round three. Oh, okay, yay, question three. Sea squirts are tunicates that start out life as larvae, swimming around looking for a rock to attach itself to. When they find one, they go through a dramatic metamorphosis and become sac life filter feeders that live on plankton and organic matter that they strain from the water that they pump through their bodies. During this process, they eat their own brains. It's probably more accurate to say they reabsorb them. But why do they do this? So I'm, I'm right. guessing they absorb most of their neurons because they no longer, okay, my guess is because they're not going to need to use most of their motor function because they become sessile and therefore, yes. yeah. Oh. That's the answer. I'm trying to move oh. <laughs> um, So the sea squirt, see, the answer is they don't need them anymore after they've attached the rock. So the sea squirt spawns by releasing eggs and sperm into the water. Eggs develop into free swimming tadpole like larvae, basically. These larvae have tails, eyes, a nerve cord, and a brain. In the words of Daniel Dennett, who's a biologist, the hmm. juvenile sea squirt wanders through the sea searching for a suitable rock or hunk of coral to cling to Ooh. and make its home okay. for life. For this task, it has a rudimentary nervous system. When it finds its spot, it takes root. It doesn't need its brain anymore, so it eats it. It's rather like getting tenure. 
<laughs> I was just going to say, aren't we all looking for a hunk of coral to attach ourselves to? <laughs> okay, so question four. What time is it? That's right. It's time for another neuroscience woodwind question. <laughs> um, or maybe I should have been like, like. <laughs> so the question is, what protein that works with piccolo to organize the synapse shares its name with a musical instrument that comes in two main varieties, heckle and buffet? Let's see. Oh. And I remind you, you said it earlier. I was going to say, it's got to be bassoon. The answer is bassoon. So question five. Um, approximately, how long is the longest neuron in the bo human body? Is that one upwards of a meter? Is that the one that kind of... I want to say it's like something sciatic, like somewhere in that like leg region. I have no idea though. That sounds <laughs> familiar. I have yeah. no better answer than that. Um, you couldn't get any more right, actually. It, was, it is the sciatic nerve. Basically, it's about one meter from the base of the spine out to the toes, depending on how tall you are. Um, for me, it's about one meter. Um, for Emily, I don't know, it's probably a couple inches. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <Wow. Yes. laughs> Whoa. Uh, sorry. <laughs> my bad. That was not necessary. Um, so me, man. Okay. <laughs> so basically the way it works is that a single cell, um, well, multiple single cells stretch like a thin little process that is only like a few micrometers in diameter that the whole, like that whole way. And that is amazing when you think about like what the size in terms of volume of a normal, like, you know, eukaryotic cell is. Um, so squid, though, actually even, you know, we keep coming back to cephalopods, you have an even larger one if, if, if it's not longer. So squid giant axons are one millimeter thick, and it also stretches about a meter from, from sort of main body all the way out to the ends of the uh, arms tentacles. Again, I can't see the chat, so uh, our cephalopod scientists are going to come in and correct me, but I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> uh, well, fun, fun fact, I so we study the squid giant axon as you know, sort of baby neuroscientists, but I really thought that it was a giant squid axon. Yeah, I had, I definitely had to double check that when I was making this. Um, but question six. So we normally think about neuroplasticity as an unambiguously good thing, but neuroplasticity pushed to the limits can cause serious problems for those who suffer from something called focal dystonia, a condition that is mostly associated with sufferers in what fine motor skill intensive profession? Uh, I don't know. Piano players? Um, yes. Okay. The answer is musicians. Certainly oh. pianists okay. count. Oh, um, cool. In the words of the Munta et al. paper uh, from 2002, the musician's brain as a model of neuroplasticity, quote, there is a dark side to the increasing specialization and prolonged training of modern musicians. That is the loss of control and deterioration of skilled hand movements known as musician's cramp or focal dystonia. Yeah, so question seven. Have reported Sorry. adverse side effects, including blurred vision, increased light sensitivity, and altered color vision. Viagra's action on what kind of central nervous system cells causes this side effect? Interesting. Uh... They have a, it's sort of like a named cell. Is, is <laughs> that like, that's not under nervous control, right? That That's a separate function? It is, let's just say it's a central nerve. It's not in the penis. The penis is not the <laughs> the root of this side effect. Okay. And yeah. It is, it is a- it Oh, is you a, mean brain, brain. It is a brain, it is central, ner <laughs> central nervous system brain. So yes, the brain. <laughs> so there is a certain kind of uh, cell in the central nervous system that is 
could possibly, if it were messed up, it could affect vision, increased light sensitivity, and altered color vision. A photoreceptor cell? Yes, which are called? Uh, rods and cones? Rods and cones. No, so these are rods wow. and cones in the retina. So rods and cones are photoreceptors, as Rob said, that convert the energy of incoming photons into changes within the photoreceptor cell itself, huh. which then communicates to other cells in the retina whether a photon has been detected. Interestingly, a photoreceptor's default state in the dark is actually, like, on. It makes no sense, but it's true. It is in the absence of a photon that a rod is excited. <laughs> in fact, after dark. Don't, don't, add to, don't add to that. Just, just <laughs> No, I, I have to continue. <laughs> I have to keep going. Um, in fact, this gives rise to one of the coolest terms in neuroscience, in my opinion. The term, actually, for the electrical activation of these cells in lieu of light is called the dark current. I just yeah. love that. Um, be a band. Yeah, right? The dark current. <laughs> yeah, anyway. So basically the way this works is that when a photon hits the photoreceptor, an enzyme called PDE is activated, which down the line inside the cell makes the photoreceptor less likely to release neurotransmitter onto the next cell. Um, it turns out that Viagra, the, one of the ways it works is that it inhibits the PDE enzyme, which is expressed in many different tissues throughout the body. So it results in an overexcited rod. Oh, I see why you had to continue it's, now. Anyway, it just goes to show you, you should be careful what you wish for. Um, <laughs> question eight, we finally reached the last question in the show. I am very excited to tell you about this next fact. Um, I hope that you were able to get it quickly. Um, <laughs> the name of what part of the brain is Latin for almond and was activated in London tube riders who smelled almonds in 2002. The amygdala. The amygdala. <laughs> so the amygdala, right, is involved in many processes, um, mostly having to do with memory and emotion, and it is studied extensively for its role in fear and anxiety. Now imagine that you're in London in November of 2002. Paula, I don't know where you're from, but possibly you were in London, in, uh, at least in the UK. I've, I've been there, yep. You've been there, okay. Um, you're from the UK, so you're much closer than us. That's true. You're, you're there in November of 2002, and you smell the scent of DiSorono Original Amaretto. Mm. The DiSorono has been piping into tube stations oh, I love as it. a marketing ploy to promote its signature almond liqueur before the Christmas season. Now, remember that it's 2002, and the world is still on quite high alert about terrorist attacks and the various forms that they might take. That's important. Now, imagine <laughs> further... That as a London tube writer, you are familiar with the safety information you have been provided with that has warned you that cyanide gas smells quite a lot like almonds, <laughs> and your amygdala goes berserk. Oh, no. If you smell something, say something. <laughs> something. Oh. Wait, they, because... piped, they piped the smell of Disarono into the tube? Here's what they did. They had fans... And they had a little machine that had a like the smell of Di Sorono, and they just like blew de, like almond smell into the station. Um, anyway, the <laughs> Di Sorono was asked immediately to stop whatever the fuck they were doing, <laughs> and they lost two point five million dollars <laughs> that they had invested in this campaign. Um, 2.5 million dollars, and they didn't give anyone a free shot. No, anyway, that that story is. Pretty nuts. Oh. 
I'm upset. I'm upset by how yeah, that was good. Right. Yep. Rob, um, now you're just that was very good. Come on. Yeah. What'd you say, Emily? I said, Rob, now you're just marzipandering. <laughs> oh, even better. So great job on the quiz, everybody. With that, Whoa. that is our show. A big thank you to our very special guest, Dr. Paula Croxon. So I'm just going to applaud because this is where this is where the audience normally just goes nuts. That you can use That's emojis, sorry, audience, very... if you want to. Oh, they're ro <laughs> they're <laughs> rolling in with the emojis. <laughs> they're not <laughs> delayed. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Thank you so much, Paula. Let me hear it in the let me hear it in the chat. Thank Snap you so much for emojis. having me. You, this you is rock. amazing. So, Paula, where can our listeners find out more about you? Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you can follow me. Uh, um, I'm at Paula Croxon on Twitter and Instagram, and, and uh, that's it. So if you want to learn more about us or get in touch with us, you know, the, the three of us who didn't already say uh, at Paula Croxon, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Facts, F-A-C-T-S, Machine Pod, and on Facebook at Facts Machine Podcast. And we individually are on social media as well. I'm at Arcs in Sciences, M. At underscore E-M Costa. And Rob. At Sweater Vest SCI. And if you liked, like we did, very much, enough to put in our live show twice, multiple live shows, um, our theme song for this show or the various other versions we've actually had for our podcast, you have a very special person to us to thank. That is AC Antonelli on guitar and also... Paula Croxon with the face-melting flute solo. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so, so much um, for being here. We are Fax Machine. We are a podcast, too. So if you are interested in learning more about what we do and hearing us just chat with a different guest all the time, some of our guests, even in the chat with you as well, um, you can go to wherever you listen to podcasts, provided that we've like figured out how to get us on there. So uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight. That's all from us. Bye. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>